Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. And I am Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist and a book author. We love using data to tell stories and music you can hear is the sound of data made with two-tone, an app that turns numbers into tunes. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, that dissects the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You will get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe at datajournalismpodcast.com to see how data is changing the world of journalism forever. Hey, Alberto. Hey, so we have something a little bit different lined up for everybody this week, don't we? Do yeah, I, I think that is going to be the, the least interesting episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, we're plainly lying in the intro, aren't we? You have some of the world's top. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It will be just the two of us today. Who said yeah. that we are the top data journalists? Well, I think, yeah. I think, yeah, we're we can not. say that. And we're the top ones in this podcast. So that'll yeah, be Yeah, exactly. We are the top ones in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. We just thought it'd be fun, the end of the year, to really just uh, us have a chat. We often... Um, yeah, with these podcasts, we talk to others and we thought, why not just record some of the chats we have? Because we talk all the time. We, we talk most, most <laughs> like a few times a week where we, we, we chat and that's how this podcast came about really, wasn't it? In the, in the first yeah, place, we wanted absolutely. To, to kind of op open up those chats. I, I, and, it's, and it seems that we never have time to catch up uh, with everything that is going on. Well, or, exactly. Yeah. So it's a great exactly. opportunity. Yeah, yeah, so I thought it'd be it'd be good to chat, but also because I have um, actually normally have it on my box, bookshelf. You probably haven't noticed it sitting behind me for the last few weeks because it's not now; it's here. <laughs> but your latest book, The Art of Insight, and I think it's a good place actually for us to have a chat about this book. Because I know you've been chatting everywhere about it, but I think it'd be good for us to have a conversation about it because I feel reading through it how familiar some of these pieces are because we've mm -hmm. we've talked about a lot of these pieces or they're showing up in in the work that we do but yeah why do we kick off with that let's let's start talking a little bit about but tell me a little bit about what led you to want to do this one and tell, and tell people about about what it is because i think it's a bit different than your normal work isn't it it is it is pretty different to the previous the previous books my my previous books are um very instructional uh, teaching people how to make data visualizations or in the case of the uh, book prior to the art of insight how chat slides a book for the general public on how not to be misled uh, by the data visualizations that we see every day in social media and news media. And the Art of Insight is completely different. The Art of Insight is essentially a series of conversations that I had with people who use data visualization in one way or another, uh, trying to learn about who they are. I mean, the intro to the show, we say, you know, you will get to know the best data journalists, right? And you will get to know how they do what they do. Well, the, the book, follows essentially that type of spirit. But it, it takes one step uh, beyond that because what I was really interested in was not so much talking about the work, but talking a little bit more about the people behind the work, who mm. they are and how their motivations and how their values permeate uh, their work. So what type of ethos they have that guides uh, the way that they do things. And the reason why I wrote it is essentially that, I, I don't know, I felt that I needed uh, two reasons. One of them is that I wanted to 
reignite my passion for for visualization i've been doing i've been making graphics for nearly 30 years now so you know it's been a long time and i love it i love teaching it but at the same time i was uh, starting to feel a little bit rusty and um i essentially wanted to just hear from other people and just you know borrow ideas share thoughts learn about their lives and what they do etc and essentially that to, to energize uh, myself the, the the pandemic years have been very hard on everyone and that includes me so the book is essentially sort of like a uh, i don't know it has been therapeutic sorry therapeutic is that the right way to <laughs> pronounce it you are the native english speaker yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> i'm not not that native I'm anymore i'm really bad at that but so. i think I, I love that you opened the book with a little story about your son alex do you want to Tell people about them and why and, and what how did alex inspire you to do this well so he's a very very creative very creative child so and, and he's also extremely smart sometimes i think too smart for his own good uh but essentially we we had this conversation about one day about about the meaning of life so he asked me well, i mean why are we here like why are we human beings here what is the meaning of everything it's like is there any meaning at all etc and that that sort of like ignited a whole thinking process inside of my inside of my mind a very quick one in which i i mean i i posed myself the same question it's like what is the meaning why are we here right and i realized that throughout the years the the, the things that i've done the th my work in some sense the work that i do uh, in part gives meaning to who I am. So it's like it's a two it's a two two way process. I obviously shape the work because I am the designer who makes decisions about how to shape data or information. But at the same time, the sheer process of doing that shapes me back. So I get something in return from the uh, from the process. And what I told him is that. Um, I don't think that life has any sort of like intrinsic meaning <laughs> uh, that we build that meaning in some sense, right? Mm. That we that we build it little by little by making good things uh, that that ourselves or other people can benefit from. So by being creative, but being creative in an ethical way that that mm -hmm. was in, implied in their response, uh, and at the same time that we also uh, become more meaningful or gain meaning by observing. Uh, deeply the things that surround us even the most you know casual uh, simple everyday things that we that we run across that's also super important to do to, to pay attention to things and in some sense that also connects with data visualization infographics because data visualization infographics are essentially ways to looking uh, deeper into into things uh, ways to see better and to observe better. So it all connected in my mind. I said, you know, after having that conversation, I said, this is the perfect intro to the book because it touches upon many of the themes that later reappear in the conversations that I had with the people I talked with. It's so interesting to me how for a lot of the people that you interview, it's uh, they got into it for a really personal reason. So there's like some, you know, I think about a couple of the artists that we work with, like Mohammed Waked or, um, Nadia Bremer, was, uh, Nadia was talking about her grandfather, I think, was a painter, and mm -hmm. her father was artistic, which made her artistic. And you can see that permeating through the work. Yeah, um, yeah. And a lot of those those artists, and they are artists, even though they're journalists as well, 
I think um, I think really have a personal kind of origin story, don't they? They do, and, and and that is something that is something else that I say in the book explicitly. It's like when you know, when people ask, uh, you know, why did you choose your career as a journalist or as a graphics uh, designer? Right? It's like um, your first impulse is to respond with like like you know mentioning you know these you know, elevated goals, right? I want to serve the community or I want to, you know, um, uh, denounce injustice or whatever. It's like, or, or explain things to people and, you know, serve my community. And those goals are really important. Those motivations are important in the work of any journalist who deserves that name. Uh, but one thing that I say very explicitly in the book is that, in, at least in my case, and I think that it's also the case of most of the people I spoke with, a core motivation is fun. It's like this mm. is fun. It's it's fun. It's enjoyable. It is enriching. Uh, you get a lot from it. You learn a lot from it. But the sheer process of learning through your designs that is very pleasurable. So I talk a lot about pleasure in the book and the importance of pleasure. yeah. There's a quote you got a Robert Gruden quote, which is that humorless people are unlikely to discover much. Shows up in one of the chats. I think I think that that is really really comes across to me. But it also it just reinforced for me how the p kind of people that work in this field are incredibly idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. nobody has the same origin. Nobody has the same story. But everybody has a very personal reason. It's like it's not like other jobs, not like other careers. Is it? It, it is not. And and that was another motivation to to write the book mm. because when we talk about data visualization. Um, and and we look at, look back at the history of data visualization. Um, it doesn't look as diverse as it truly is. Yeah. It is extremely diverse, very diverse in many different senses: in terms of race, in terms of country of origin, in terms of gender, in terms of approaches to the way of doing visualization. That's mm. something that I really wanted to uh, uh, make a strong point about that the way that I make data visualization or the way that I think about data visualization is not the only way to think about data visualization. It's just one. It is very journalistic, very storytelling oriented, but there are people who are much more analytical, who use data visualization for statistical analysis or data science, for example. That's another possible approach. But there are also people who create, create visualizations with artistic purposes or poetic purposes. So the mm -hmm. analogy that I make in the book repeatedly between between design, particularly visualization design, and writing is very relevant because there is not a single way of writing well. It's like mm. it all depends on your goals, on your motivations, on the context in which you produce your produce your work. So I wanted to expose readers to this huge diversity of approaches, or, or as I said in the book, a huge variety of dialects of the common language of data visualization. Yeah, it's it's a funny field, but I think also we shouldn't pretend it's like it's perfect. And obviously, it's not just like any other field. There is the old guard who believe certain set of things, and there are, are new people. And you know, you've been involved in like a kind of Twitter conversation recently, which came after Manu Chalabi did an interview around um, the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We should talking about how important it was to be honest, uh, um, and and for journalists have a point of view. Yeah, data journalists have a point of view. You're not like this independent thing, and also some of the pressure she's felt um, by 
the traditional structures of, of newsrooms. Yeah, and, as, and a, small, as a, a, as a woman of color, as a woman sure. of color, obviously she has felt a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that, because I know you interviewed Shirley Wu about that, didn't you? Or she, she yeah, brought yeah. it up, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, she brought, she brought it up. I mean, it's like, and not, not only Shirley, but also, for example, uh, Federica, also yes. Federica, Federica yeah. Fragapane. Um, and, 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 and Sonia Kuchpers also from, from Germany. It's like they, when they entered data visualization, they encountered this field that on the one hand was welcoming in the sense that mm. it's very, it's very horizontal and open, but at the same time, certain sectors in the field were very close to newcomers, particularly to newcomers who brought fresh, fresh approaches to the field. So they were essentially criticized, right? So, oh, this is not data visualization. This is data art or whatever, right? Trying to demarcate the field and be overly protective, protective about what those people who were criticizing them thought that data visualization was all about. And I say very explicitly in the book that I tended to be a little bit like that myself, perhaps not as extreme as other people mm. from the old guard, maybe, but I was a little bit like that. And I learned not to be like that just because there's value in this type of work. We can learn a lot from it. And this diversity enriches us. And um, the fact that one person does data visualization one way doesn't yeah. impede doesn't impede another person to do it in a completely different way. And we can learn from each other. Who cares? It's like the important thing is that we are all on board um, being, you know, ethical and trying to tell stories that are truthful and that serve a community. That's what truly matters. Then the way that you do it, that's not really that much. And that effort to demarcate the field as to whether something is data visualization or not, or, mm. you know, dismissing some work as data art, such, like if the, the word art had something wrong with it, uh, I think that that's completely wrong. So, yeah, there's a little bit of that in the book as well. I think it's, it's totally true. I mean, there's, you know, it's really important for us to have like an institutional memory and to learn from what's come before, for sure. But for me, I've always been interested in like different ways to do visuals. And I think, you know, like so we've seen recently a lot of artists who are called like Michelle Real and Mona, as mentioned, who do this kind of hand-drawn art. Um, but it's not just art, is it? It's always based on the data. Like Mona's work in particular, she goes to great lengths to make sure it's like statistically accurate and everything's proportional and so on. Which I thought I thought was really interesting. But I also thought it was interesting how you opened the book um with a piece of kind of very physical data viz. Was it a crochet, a piece of crochet work? And that, to me, like, and, and that's why I, I get straight away from the book that data viz is not just things on computers or things on pieces of paper, but it can yeah. be anything. Or, or, or it's not even visualization alone. It, it's, in some sense, data sensification. It's just part of mm. a broader world of data sensification in which data can be translated into objects of different kinds. These objects can be physical, they can be virtual, they can be auditory, they can be, they can be it's, like, it's a way, uh, again, it's part of a broader, much broader field. So yeah, absolutely. I That piece of crochet is related to one of the first pieces that I showcase in the book, which is um, Ed Hawkins's uh, warming stripes uh, uh, graphic. So Hawkins, mm. who is a climate scientist, uh, took inspiration from, um, from that piece, who which was designed by another climate scientist uh, as well. And if you, um, I know this is difficult, right, because these are all your babies. But if you had to choose like a couple of interviews that really had an impact on you, which ones would you choose and what were they about? Uh, 
I know they're all they're all impactful, right? But but choose just choose just choose a couple that you'd like to highlight. The, yes, yeah. The last one, the the, the last one was with uh, Anatoly Bondarenko, who has been mm. in the podcast before, a common friend from Ukraine. Yeah, and um, that was particularly emotional for me because I wrote that piece um, while while he was part of the Ukrainian army. He's still in the Ukrainian army, and so the piece opens with the the re realization of you know that myself my, me telling myself you know um my friend is at war it's like that that says that he's at war how is he doing right and yeah no, we had the conversation when when he was um on a on a break uh, from being part of the ukrainian army so that was particularly um emotional in some sense uh, not only because of that but also because that the work that uh, anatoly does at Texty, the organization that he's part of, and the, 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 the work of his team in general, is just extraordinary. It's just, it's, it's so good. It's just so good. Go is so, so good. And, and it's work that has been produced in a, in a country that is being invaded by an enemy. That, that's mm. incredible. So, yeah, that, that, that's probably the one that I would, that I would choose. Um, and then, you know, a conversation also with um, a, I would say, um, Attila Batorfi, we also had him in the in the podcast recently, um, also working in a in a really difficult environment, uh, Hungary under un, uh, under the presidency of Viktor Orban is obviously not, not a very welcoming place for independent journalists, and and the work that he does and the work that his team has produced is also quite uh, quite extraordinary. And then Federica Fragapanes is always a highlight. Um, I, I, we work together, uh, in, including you. I mean, we both, we both work yeah. with her. She's amazing. Um, we have a we know. have a project coming out soon, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. We do have a project coming coming out soon. And um, yeah, that, those those will be the ones, perhaps. But again, I enjoyed every single conversation. There is something unique about each one of these people that I learn from a lot. Definitely. So one of the things that I'd, you've done is you've divided the interviews up into chap, into sections, right? So you've mm -hmm. got pragmatist, eccentrics, the ambassadors, and the narrators. And even mm -hmm. within that, there were kind of categories like um, the eternal wanderer or the mindful artisan. Which of these categories would you fit into? Oh, I am a narrator. That's for sure. Uh -huh. Maybe maybe a little bit of an ambassador since I became a professor years ago. I like to teach people and not only my students, but in general, you know, that's the whole reason I wrote How Chats Lie, right? It's like, a, mm. it's a book for the general public. So maybe an ambassador, I like to advocate for a good visualization and I really enjoy going to places and teaching people the basics, the absolute basics, the most elementary knowledge of data visualization, open up their eyes to the fact that visualization is not magic and that anybody can learn how to do it. So I'm a little bit of an ambassador in some sense. I'm also, involved in some projects recently to increase a, a data literacy and scientific scientific reasoning so i enjoy doing that but at heart i am a journalist so i am a narrator that's for sure oh that's so interesting yeah well, what I, about you oh man um you know i mean like <laughs> i i met with alan rusbridger like who used to work at the guardian like a few years ago and mm -hmm. he said to me so at, at heart you're still a newsman and I, I still feel that in my bones. Like mm -hmm. that's part of, you know, it's my, it was my growing up was in the newsroom and yeah. it's definitely, it's what I love. And I love 
you know, when we when we have to react to situations quickly. And so that's my my favorite thing. I think that um for me, I, I guess I want to understand stuff better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I am i do not I'm not a visual artist. I work with a lot of visual designers and people who really understand visual, and I have a really good sense of what appeals to me visually. But a heart, I just want to understand things better. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be excited and have fun with it. So I, I don't know. I would I would kind of like I guess in my world, I probably probably feel like I want to be I'm a mixture between an between being a narrator and an ambassador. I would say but, um, I would say ambassador. If I had yeah. you for the book, <laughs> I think that I would I'll put you in the ambassador because you are you were a pioneer in in this stuff. I mean, you were doing this type of work before most other people when you were at the Guardian. No man, I lucked, I lucked out on the timing a lot because I got into it at a time when suddenly there were a load of uh, tools and we were able to make stuff that we couldn't make before. Mm-hmm. So it's weird to me. Like I've I've worked with amazing visual artists, but the stuff probably that I did that had the most impact on could have been something I made in fusion tables or a GIF or something, you know. And then um but having said that, like the work I feel like the work that I do now is actually journalistically some of the most exciting I've I've got to do. Like, you know, we're working with this incredibly weird data set that just changes constantly but tells us a ton about the world and who we are mm. um you know in a, you know we're always talking about digital exhaust and big data and it becomes scary when big data is you know inherently you know feels scary to people but mm-hmm. you know this data set somehow it it tells you things that are incredibly human uh, one example i was used is like um when uh, there were some hurricanes, there's always a hurricane season, it feels like mm-hmm. right now, but a recent one, I think it was in Texas, and one of the trending searches was how to calm a dog in a storm. So that would have meant that a load of people were searching for that. And it's something that's about this big kind of like, you know, physical weather event, but it's something that's very human as well. And that's, to me, that data really appeals in that way, especially like next year we've got like an election mega cycle coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have several big elections happening around the world. And, you know, we'll see tons of reporting about polling. But I think trends data is way more interesting because for me, it tells you what people really care about, what they're thinking about. Yeah. And one of the one of the projects working on right now that we've got coming out um with Axios, like hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, um, is about is about the cost of living and how yeah. people search around the cost of living. Super interesting data and the nuances between countries are fascinating. Yeah. Um, and those kind of projects really, really, you know, I find those really exciting and they're, they're different to what I was doing before, but they're, they're just as newsy and just as relevant, I think. But yeah, that, that's what I found fascinating about your career, which is that you were a pioneer at The Guardian at the time, but then you eventually moved into tech, um, first at Twitter. And, um, and and now at uh, Google, but in essence, what you do is still, I mean, still data journalism in some sense. I, I mean, I feel that definitely. And you know, like like you, I, I get to teach, but I only teach one one semester, so I'm like an amateur compared to you on this. But I, I teach with the Medill School, have a have a campus in San Francisco, and for the first quarter of the year, about thirty or students come from Illinois to to the Bay Area, and um, I do an introduction to data journalism visualization class, and it's and I'm really glad I do it because it makes me think about what I do, mm-hmm. and I think I take a lot of the stuff for granted. You and I've talked about this a lot. You know, it's, you can take stuff for granted because you just do it every day, mm-hmm. and it's not until you have you talk about it with somebody who's learning 
that it becomes like a real thing that's it is that's it is relevant. hard to it's hard to imagine what it feels like yeah not, not like, what, exactly exactly because it's stuff that i just know and i just think oh it's not that big a deal but it kind of is for a lot of people and that's that's really good i'm lucky that i get given the freedom to to work in that way and certainly i think a lot of a lot of what we do is about how we perceive ourselves and i think for me it's always been important to perceive myself in that way as, as still you know journalist story data storyteller mm -hmm. um in that way but and i guess a lot of what i do is like a lot of what you do is like working with people who are amazing you know i've, I've got a i've got a team at google who are like a team of kind of young brilliant kind of like trends curators who are really interested in telling stories and we have great discussions on being true to the data and accurate and mm -hmm. and um but at the same time you and i get to work with the amazing visual artists yeah on really interesting visual projects you know yeah like, it, it is it is a privilege to work with so in the in the in the series of visualizations that we have produced throughout the years i yeah. I, I am sometimes credited as, a, as an art director which I find very funny because I don't direct anybody to do anything. I just oh, ob observe and give opinion, <laughs> give opinions. <laughs> but then every every person do I mean does what they what they want essentially. I just give my own my opinion, right? But yeah, no, I don't you remember when we started doing this? I think it was yeah. it came out of the fact that you know when I when I joined here, I wanted to, us to make visuals, and I didn't want to do what companies always do, which is they always like make basically kind of marketing things that feel like marketing things out of, out of graphics. And I, I thought, well, we could use this visual, you know, trends visuals for good, mm -hmm. you know? And um, so you and I kind of really worked on that. And we've had people like Moritz Stefana and Nadia Bremer and Mohamed Abakad. Yeah, and, and, and Shirley and Federica. And, yeah, Federica. And, and we have partnered up with, you know, great partners with Axios, The yeah. Washington Post. Yeah, we have published work in many... Super yeah, and, and um, of course, like Polygraph, who are the kind of uh, they build visuals, their visuals arm really of of the pudding, and mm -hmm. um, we do a ton of projects with them and um, Pitch Interactive as well, who who have kind of back together again. You know, I think of these kind of live real time visuals we've done with them too. So there's a ton of work out there, and and we've know. done international work as well. If you remember, yeah. probably we will do more next year because, as you said, there are elections coming up. For example, in Mexico, we we did a project about the Mexican election years ago and Brazilian elections and yeah, you know, misinformation and, and in different the, places. The, yeah. the the epicenter of COVID um, project. Oh yeah, yeah, that was stands out to me as just a simple, beautiful thing that Brazilian team yeah. did. Brazilian team, and then it was eventually transferred to the United States, and it was published by the Washington Post, the American version. Yeah, of it. Yeah, it has it has been quite a ride. I must say <laughs> well, we're still we're still on it, but yes. So yeah. <laughs> one of the things we did today was we asked um, our, our, the readers on Twitter, um, like you know, basically, are there any questions that they'd like us to discuss? And a couple of people did actually respond, which is always mm -hmm. amazing to me how that happens. Um, Attila Batofi um, was one of them from <laughs> Hungary. Mm -hmm. And um, he wants to talk about, I'm going to read this out, epistemological issues of data. Yeah, yeah. Different, different methods of data collection and construction lead to different facts and realities. How do we handle it? And um, also be uh, good to hear your views on whether such a thing as an ideology of data visualization. Mm. All right. What do you think? I, I, I think that I can begin with, with that. So if what he means by ideology of data visualization, he means that um, the way that we think about it essentially influences the way that we produce it, then the answer is yes. 
But there's not a single ideology. There are several ideologies mm. of data visualization because each one of us has slightly different priorities. And those priorities or motivations lead to different styles or ways of doing things. Mine is very straightforward. I like graphics that tell the story as clearly as I can. So no flourishes, just go directly, show the data. So I use a lot of traditional data visualizations, bar graphs, line charts, scatter plots, data maps, etc. because I come from a world, from a background in journalism, but there are other people who produce work in other ways, and many of them showcase in the new in the new book. So I don't think that there is a single ideology of data visualization. Maybe in the past, when data visualization yeah. was essentially just a part of a statistics, maybe there was as a single one, but, but I don't know. What do you think? I think, I mean, that's a really interesting, isn't it? I think he, if you'd like, Tufty's book or whatever is like is like kind of his manifesto, isn't it? But for me, um, I think I think such as it is, it's like a combination of several elements. For me, it's a combination of loving explainer visuals as I grew up, you know, loving Richard Scarry, mm. all of those things, wanting to understand the world a little bit better and um, to be accessible. You know, we, we shouldn't, I don't think, I don't think we should be making visuals for you know, our, our colleagues, but we should be making visuals for the world that the world understands, which I, I definitely get a lot from your book. And, um, but also, I guess, in the work that I do right now, a lot of that is about, is shaped by the data that I work with, mm -hmm. you know, which is a particular data. And it, it was different when I was at The Guardian, and it might be different for me in the future. But right now, it's shaped by that. But for me, those things about being accessible, being understandable helping to to kind of analyze the world a, bit, a little bit better those are the things that kind of that that motivate me as, as, as an ideology and and the accuracy is like beyond that accuracy isn't an ideology accuracy is the is the table stakes that's like it's the one thing you have to be as accurate if, whatever you do even if the story you're telling is a story with a point of view you know, I still, you know, being accurate but not misrepresenting numbers or sizes or data is is super important. So I think, but I think having this this the book really, I don't want to keep going back to it, but the book really emphasised for me the importance of this kind of like this grand coalition of lots of different voices and views in what makes it what makes an interesting visual, and that's what makes it feel interesting. How how boring would it be if everything looked the same? You know, how yeah, how dull would I, that world I, be? I completely agree. His other question is much more difficult to answer, like oh, God, epi yeah. epistemologic issues of data, different methods of data collection and construction, right? Data, oh, is, data is constructed. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, and I would add interpretation because the same data that is being constructed in the exact same way can be interpreted in many different ways because there's a human being in there sort of like intervening in the in the process, right? And it may lead to different facts, quotation marks, a square, sorry, a, a scare quotes around that, facts and, and realities, right? So again, yeah. books, entire books have been written about these. So I don't think that this podcast is the right place to to answer that question. But I mean, God, yeah. I mean, like if you think about the data set that I work with every day, hmm. it's basically, it's always changing. Every time we take it, it's like a photograph. You take a snapshot of the data at that moment. It's a sample of all searches, not all searches. It's like a sample of them. So, you know, it's always changing and very ephemeral and it reflects the moment that you look at it. And I think, I think, you know, it's, it's, but then all data, it feels to me like all data that we deal with, most of it is guess it is guesswork. GDP figures, 
that's guesswork, right? I mean, it's the census because you're counting stuff, but a lot of these figures are just just people, you know, making educated, informed guesses, but it's still guesses. So I think being transparent and honest about where that work comes from is super important. It absolutely is. And um, in terms of like replying to the question, as long as we, I, I, first of all, I don't think that I am qualified to to respond to that, respond to that question. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm always happy to recommend readings that may be helpful for anybody. So in the Art of Insight, for example, I mentioned a data feminism, the book by Catherine Dignacio and uh, Lauren Klein. So that's an excellent book to start thinking more critically about what we what we do. It's a mm. truly excellent book. Uh, the work of uh, Georgia Lupi. Georgia has written about data humanism, um, uh, different approach to analyzing data. Uh, I can think about uh, Heather Cross, who has an organization called we all count uh, we all count.com so she has a she's a statistician and she does lo lots of training on um you know biases in the data misrepresentations of people that are not counted correctly in the data there are tons of people working in these in these areas so i would recommend that to start with them and then just continue reading absolutely so i think i think um actually we do have one more question as well i'm gonna I'm going to add this in, and I want to come back to that because I think we should do our own pop quiz questions. We never do that. Um, <laughs> but okay, so do you? Uh, this is from Pinar Pinar Dagfirth. Um, just do you use AI in your data visualization projects? Be great if you share your experience. If there are tools you use, you can share them. So um, I can answer that initially, and in that we have actually done a couple of AI projects. Um, they they one was with um, this great Mexican um, uh, news outlet, the name of which totally escapes me right now, but it was about um, homicides, drug homicides in Mexico. El Universal. That's El thank Universal. you, El Universal. It's one of the main you. national newspapers in, yeah, in Mexico. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a really interesting project where they wanted to use uh, news story data to compare to crime data to see where the gaps in news coverage were. It's called Zones of Silence. And... Um, basically uses Google natural language processing to analyze all these user, news articles and work out where they're about and then see where those gaps are. And that project really had an impact, didn't it? Like it had reactions in... And it was, in you got, it had many reactions, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's, that, to me, that's a really interesting part. I haven't done so much recently, but I'm sure we'll be doing some going ahead. But do you guys talk in your course... Alberta about AI and how do you not, how do you not for it? now yeah so the way that I'm approaching it right now is a very basic and I think that many people are doing doing the same things that I do which is particularly people who like me don't like to code <laughs> we just ask <laughs> just ask all these generators in natural using natural using natural language please clear, create a scatter plot for me with this variable and that variable and speed up the R code so I can copy and paste it and then edit it. And it works rather well, particularly for simple graphics, right? It's a sim relatively simple graphics. I think that they work uh, pretty well. But again, I'm not. I'm not particularly creative. I'm just. I would not say that I'm waiting. I am seeing. I'm not waiting. I'm doing a lot of reading and thinking. So maybe this is a question for maybe for next year. Maybe by yeah. the next episode that we do in 2024, we'll have a more detailed answer to this question. Absolutely. Okay, Alberto, look, I've got, I'm going to ask you one of the questions from our list, which is our pop quiz list. So the regular listeners will know that we end 
every episode with a pop quiz of of um, questions that we want to know the answer on, and often they're things like tree maps or pie charts. But I, I feel like I know that with you, so I'm going to ask you, what would you have done if you hadn't gone into journalism? I will be a historian. Hmm. That's what I want. Well, a historian and or an artist, because I wanted to study. I, I, I was so interested in so many things when I was a when I was a teenager, and I think that this this shows up in the art of insight. The Art of mm. Insight is, is also a very weird book because I have a lot of quotes from philosophers, for example. And that is mainly because I've been reading philosophy my entire life. And um, so I would, I would, I think that I would have studied um, um, uh, humanities. I would, it's maybe a combination of philosophy, history. I'm also super interested in history, particularly medieval history, um, early medieval history. And... Um, so yeah, but I think that I would have, have pursued a career in the in the humanities and super interested in that. Or a game designer, because I'm a ah. hard, hardcore board game a, a player. Yeah. What about you? Oh man. Um so I've wanted to do this since I was 10. But um so it's mostly what I can remember. And I think I'll always be doing something, even if it's uh, you know, like different but i'll always be doing something in this field i think um for me this was the first thing that i did that i knew i was good at you know when you you know when you really feel like you're you're not just average at something that you're, that you're in, the, in the right place doing you're the in the right place yeah and so this field was definitely the first thing i felt i was really good at in that way um so so i can't imagine it makes i mean you know the stuff that i love doing outside work i go kayaking i live in most beautiful part of the world um in california but i think um for me i'll always i'll always yeah. do this somehow all right i'll do i'll i'll pose the same the next question so okay two or three books or classes that influence you that had an impact on your career oh man um okay so for me um when i was at the guardian i was a news editor but i was working with the graphics team i started doing that work and um I was loving doing it, and I was collecting lots of data sets. And then we had Adrian Holovati mm -hmm. came to speak, and it was—I could probably say it's the most influential talk I've ever been to on my career because mm -hmm. he came to speak to the to to the Guardian's like newsroom lunchtime meeting, and it was full. And he was sitting there talking about, and his his background is obviously different to mine. He's a coder and a developer. But he was talking about it, and I was sitting there thinking, I think this is a job. There, there is a job in there, which is like working with data and using it to tell stories and making that your speciality. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was super, super valuable, super important, and um, I'll always remember that. And then it's obviously, actually, for me, the stuff that I think about often is um, these books that I had as a kid, which I still love. I love graphics books. I love Dorling Kindersley, Cutouts. Those were almost quite traditional books. And I had this book of the big book of machines. Mm -hmm. It's called, and I've still got it on my shelf actually. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm gonna get it. Hang on, this makes this makes terrible audio, so I'm gonna I'm gonna edit it a little bit. <laughs> this is the the big book of machines nice. by um and it's all these kinds of drawings of like the history of the world in yeah, um right. In machines like hand line drawings, yeah, 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 of yeah. Um, the way the Vi visual works. explanations of machine visual explanation. Yeah. This is like J uh, that's a drawing with James Watt, and it's written by called Machines and Illustrated History. I don't think anymore. It's by Sigvard Strand, uh -huh. 
And it's about basically it's about the Industrial Revolution, really. Uh-huh. There's lots of these kind of drawings, very 1970s. I, I used to read this but endlessly. Like I'm looking at it now and I can remember sitting in bed reading, looking at these pictures and reading these books. And Richard Scarry and things like that. And Richard Scarry books obviously for understanding how the world works. So for nice. me, those those um those are the ones that I kind of go back to, even though they seem they're basic. They're not like they're not ba- well, not basic, but you know what I mean. But they're they're basic in different way. And um biscuit out of view on this. But um for me, yeah, those ones I go back to. How about you, Alberto? Well, to me, um, I think that uh, the visual display of quantitative information by Tafti, by Edward Tafti, had a huge influence in two different ways, actually. Uh, first of all, I think that it's still a book that everybody should read. It's a, it's a very influential book, one of the landmarks in the, in the field. But I, it, it was also influential in the sense that I got a negative reaction towards it because my, many of the rules, so to speak, that appear in the book, I disagree with, and many of the examples that he provides in the book, I de- deeply disliked. So he has several examples of ultra minimalistic data visualizations and says, well, this graphic really shows the information well. And I say, sure, it does. And it also looks good. And my reaction to that was to say, no, it looks terrible. It looks horrible. This is a bad graphic. I would never publish this in the newspaper. Nobody's going to read it. But then you need to realize that it's a book written by a statistician for statisticians. Even if he criticizes many designers in the book, it's a book essentially for statisticians. And much of, much of the book is super useful. I think that it has a, sort of like passed the test of time. And it's, a, it's, again, a book worth reading. It's a very serious book, very well written, beautifully produced. And so it's a hugely influential on me. Then a more obscure book, <laughs> I I love maps and much of what I know about data visualization I learned through studying cartography on my own. And there is this wonderful book that I believe in, in its third edition titled uh, Thematic Cartography and Geovisualization by Terry Slocum. That was hugely influential on me. I read that book like two or three times. It's so good. It's much more technical. It's not like this high-minded highly conceptual you know, books about visualization. It's very practical oriented, but it was hugely influential. And then anything by Nigel Holmes. I, I, I stumbled upon the work of Nigel's when I was um, a beginner because his work was recommended to me by the people who taught me how to make infographics and they showed me plenty of his work. I got several of his books and he was hugely influential on me because he provided a different approach to data visualization, which was much friendlier towards the reader, uh, including a little bit of humor always in the in the visualizations. And then I got eventually I got to meet I got to meet Nigel uh, 20 years ago, I think, and we became friends. And you know, story comes back full circle, I guess. And now I find myself editing Nigel's books because he's uh, writing a series of books. The first one is um, a joyful infographics that was published this year by CRC Press. And I am the co-editor, along with Tamara Mansner, of the book series where that book is has, has appeared. And it was such a delight to work with Nigel. He's such a fun character. And, um, and he's working on other books right now that I'm about to edit. So I'm super excited about that. So those, yeah, those will be the influences, I would say. Nigel has kind of like a model career because he is like always producing interesting work 
but it's also very personal to him. Like I loved, I loved that his last book because of yeah. that. You can see his family kind of history in it, which is cool. Yeah. All right. So everybody have a brilliant holiday period and we will see you next year. Thank you for this, Simon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alberto. Bye, friend. <laughs>